verses 9 through 13. As many of you know, um, we have a few visitors this morning in our Bible study class. We take a book of the Bible. We start at verse 1 and we go to the end and we, we cover whatever's there. We don't skip anything. Um, sometimes that's difficult because there's things sometimes in the Bible that can be difficult to understand, difficult to accept, but we don't skip any of that. We, we believe, if you go, last week I looked at our bulletin and our statement of beliefs and number one, does anybody know what number one says? We believe the Bible is true. That's exactly right from the very beginning to the very end. And we'll see that today. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, let's stop right there for one second. One of the things this tells us that some of you may not be aware of is that there was a letter to the church at Corinth prior to the one that we're studying. Notice what Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter. There was a previous letter that he had written to them. In fact, we'll see next week, there was a letter they had written to him to ask some questions about the church. And so, uh, obviously, this is not a a spirit-inspired letter because it's been lost. Uh, If God had inspired that letter, he would have made sure that it didn't get lost. But that letter has, we don't know what was in that. But this is the letter Paul's referring to. So he said this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but I did not at all mean that you should not associate with the sexually immoral people of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world. So when Paul says, when I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people, I didn't mean people out there. He said, that's not what I meant at all. In fact, to do that, you'd have to actually leave the world. But now he says this, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. So he says, I'm not talking about people outside the church. I'm talking about people who say they're Christians. That's who I'm talking about. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Therefore, purge the evil person from among you. Now, this is a, a two-part lesson that we're in today on church discipline. How are we to handle when we have sin in the church? When, we, when there's somebody in the body that's committing some type of egregious sin, how are we to handle it? How are we to deal with it? This is what Paul is writing about here in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, if you were not here last week, we covered the first part of this, church discipline part one. Um, I would strongly encourage you to go back to the podcast and listen to that if at all possible so you can kind of get up to speed. But just a quick review from last week. If you go back to verse 1, you'll see the problem that Paul was addressing. He said this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So, the, 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 the problem, as Paul states it, is that in the church there is a man who's having sexual relations with either his mother or his stepmother. And we don't know which one it is because in the Greek the phrase is his father's wife. Let's just, let's just hope it was his, his stepmother, just assume that. But the fact is, Paul says, regardless of what it is, it's of a kind that's not even accepted outside the church. And the, and the problem, Paul says is the church was doing nothing about it. Nobody was addressing it. 
they were just letting it go on, and, and Paul says that has to stop. And so in verses 2 through 5, Paul says this is what you need to do about it. He said this, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now we're going to talk about what Paul means there um, in, in just a, a few minutes. But what we pointed out last week, was Paul, you got a problem in the church, Paul says, here's what you need to do. You need to take that man and get him out of the church. He needs to be removed from the body. Now, what we pointed out last week is when Paul says this, this is not the whole process. This is actually the end of the process. Remember last week we talked about, if you've ever seen that TV show, Intervention. Anybody ever watched that on TV? It's a show where you've got uh, people, they're on some kind of drugs or they're, they're bad alcoholics and their family finally has an intervention. And it's kind of a last gasp, last chance to save their, their life. But what we realize is over the years, there have been people have talked to them, people have dealt with them, people have tried to convince them. The intervention just kind of ends up being a last gasp. Well, the same thing is true here. What you're seeing with Paul is the end of the process, not the entire process. Other things should go on before you get to this uh, point. Now, there's two quick things. Today, we're, again, we're going to talk about the four steps of church discipline. What do we do when there's sin in the church? Now, I want to point out a couple of things before we start. Number one, what is given to us are guidelines. They're not written in concrete. You'll see this in a minute. They are guidelines for how to deal with these things. One of the, most, the best scriptures you need to keep in mind, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says this, we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the unruly. That means to rebuke, to, to get in somebody's face and say, you're wrong with what you're doing. He says, admonish the unruly, but watch what he says. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everybody. In other words, as Christians, it's important for us not to just, when we see somebody doing wrong, not to just automatically run up and get in their faith and get, face and get all judgmental, but we should know that person. That person may be a new Christian. They may just be immature. They may have some, uh, they may have some emotional problems that need to be dealt with. That doesn't, just because they're in sin doesn't necessarily mean they're being rebellious and disobedient. By the way, unruly means someone knows the rules and they're just willfully breaking them. That's what we call unruly. That, that may not be the case at all. So it's important that we know people and know uh, who they are and how to deal with them. And in any case, notice what it says, be patient with everyone. Okay? Don't rush to judgment. Be patient with, with everyone. And always remember the goal. The goal is not to judge. The goal is not to condemn. The goal is not to be vindictive. The goal is always restoration and reconciliation. We want to bring them back into the, the body so they're a healthy, functioning member of that uh, body. So let's walk through this. We covered two of these steps last week, so we're going to review them very quickly. Uh, by the way, when, when the question we have here is how do we deal with sin in the church? And, and the great thing about this is we were told how to do this by Jesus himself. You'll notice the words up there in red. They come out of Matthew 18. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus told us what to do. He knew there would be issues that would have to be dealt with, and he wanted to make sure he covered it. So in Matthew 18, uh, verses 15 through 18, I believe, 
he walks us through it. Look at step one. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. So that is step one. If there's someone in the church who is sinning. Okay, now, we, we covered all this last week, but let me say this one more time. Everybody in the church sins. Would we all agree with that? Nobody's perfect. But we're talking about... We're talking about fairly egregious sins. We're talking about someone who says they're a Christian, but they keep living the way the world lives. We, say, we, we have someone that says they're a Christian, Christian, but they're teaching false doctrine. Someone says they're a Christian, Christian but they're causing divisiveness in the church. Okay, They're causing, causing schisms in the church. Those are the types of things that have to be dealt with. Jesus said, if you see that, then go to that person privately, just you, by yourself, and show them. And again, how do we show them? We show them in the Word. It's not your opinion. Nobody really cares what you think about it. You go to the Word and you show them in the Word. This is why what you're doing is, is wrong. Now, a few questions that we covered all this last week. Number one, the person who is your brother, the person must be someone who professes to be a Christian. If you read, if you saw in our verse today, we don't judge people outside. We got nothing to do with that. If someone is an unbeliever, then our job is to win them to Christ, not judge their sin. That's that's none of our business. Okay? We spend too much time in the modern church today trying to judge unbelievers. That's none of our business. We are to win them to Christ. That is our one and only job. Win them to Jesus Christ. Inside the church is a different story. If someone claims to be a Christian, okay? So that's that's number one. Who are we, to, in this case, to go to? Our brother is someone who says they're a Christian. They most, must be associated with your church. In other words, this person must be associated here with River of Life. I have no... It's not my business to judge anybody from Sopchoppy Southern or, or MedArt Assembly or Crawfordville First or any of that. It's, it's in our assembly, in our body. Everybody with me? Um, number three, they must be knowingly rebellious and disobedient. We're not talking about... There are young Christians who may be committing some sin because they don't even know what the Word says. Okay, again, as I mentioned, there may be someone with emotional problems. There may be somebody that we would just refer to as weak or faint-hearted. They need to be helped and encouraged. But we're talking about somebody who is knowingly rebellious and disobedient. We only judge, okay, very importantly... We only judge based on clear commands in the Bible. If it's not clearly stated in the Bible, we stay away from it. We don't judge anybody for how long their dresses are. We don't judge anybody for how, if their beard's too long, if they've got earrings or tattoos or any of that kind of stuff. That's not, there are no clear commands in the Bible that deal with those things. The example we used last week, if I went over to a brother's house and he had a glass of wine with dinner... That is not eating, having a glass of wine with your with your dinner is not subject to church discipline. There are no clear commands on, in the Bible as to whether you can do that or not do that. The Bible says, "Let every person be convinced in their own heart." If you're getting drunk, you are subject to church church discipline because there is a very clear command in the Bible: do not get drunk. Everybody with me? Okay. Uh, another thing we did: if you go to movies, everybody in here probably watches movie, and you all have your own standards. 
Some says, well, I'll only watch a G movie. I'll watch a PG, a PG-13, an R. Whatever you do is up to you. Be convinced in your own heart that what you're doing is right or wrong. That's up to you. That's not subject to church discipline. If you watch pornography, you are subject to church discipline because that's a whole different story. The Bible clearly says that a man shouldn't look at a woman in his, to lust after her in his heart. That's committing adultery. Okay, so you, you want to go watch an R-rated movie, you better be convinced in your own heart. And, but that's not discipline. That's not subject to it. But if you're watching pornography, of course, you are. Um, we are to be patient with them. As we saw in Thessalonians, Paul said, be patient with everyone. How many times do we go to them? Anybody? One, two, three? It's up to you. The Bible doesn't say, does it? It just says, go to them, be patient. You know, it's kind of like my kids. There's, I go to my kids and I say, you shouldn't be doing this. You should. If I go about, after a while, I, in my mind, I know they're not listening to me. It's time to elevate this to another level. You have to kind of know. Use your discernment. Use your wisdom in what you're supposed to do here. And the, and the one I put down here, all, by the way, all those others, be patient. Judge based on clear commands in the Bible. Those all come from Scripture. The last one doesn't, but I think it works best if, you, if you're a friend. You know, if a friend comes to me and says, look, I need to talk to you about something, I'm going to be more apt to listen to that person than if some stranger. Would we agree? Okay, that's why we're all supposed to be involved in this. this is, when, when, when someone goes, it's not just the pastor or an elder. It should be friends should be someone that we have a relationship with that we are not afraid to go to them and say, look, you know, what you're doing, you're playing with fire here. You, you need to turn this around. This, this, this has got a chance to get out of control if you don't deal with it. So it works best if you're a, a friend. Now, if they will not listen, okay, so you've gone to them two times, three times, four times, maybe a month has gone by, two months has gone by, and you don't see any change, Jesus says this, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so by, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Jesus says, if he will not listen to the friend, if, you won't, if that person will not listen to that single person that comes to them privately, then take one or two or three. Again, it's just the idea here is you take a few more and you go to that person and once again you show them what they're doing wrong. You, you point it out in Scripture. You implore them, you pray with them, you ask them to turn from that sin and come back into the body, okay? So that's the point here. Now, now the point here, by the way, is just kind of like you do with children. There's times with children you have to kind of escalate the situation, right? It's the same thing here. What you're doing here is you're strengthening the reproof and you're causing that person to realize the seriousness of the situation. It's kind of mentioned last week. If I go to someone and a friend of mine, and I've talked to them two or three, four or five times and nothing changes and one day I knock on their door and they open the door and there's, say, Pastor Henry and Brother Ralph standing with me, they might realize, uh-oh, this ain't going away. They're going to immediately know what it's about. They're going to immediately know it's gone to a different level. That's the whole point. Again, how many times are we to do this? doesn't say, okay? These are guidelines. Maybe you do it twice. Maybe you do it three times. But the point is, is that we've kind of escalated the, the situation. Now, today we get to step three. Now, by the way, would we love this situation to be taken care of at step one? 
Absolutely. Would we love for it, if it has to go to step two, would we love for it to be there? Absolutely. Listen, we don't ever want it to get to step three, and we sure don't want it to get to step four. So we do everything in our power to handle these things privately, to handle them behind closed doors. Because I want you to see what happens in step three. Jesus said this, If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. In other words, by the way, the word church just means the assembly of believers. That's what the word church is. It's, it's, this is what we're doing right now. We're, uh, we're in church. With the, we're, it's the assembly of believers. What he's saying is if he doesn't listen to the person privately, he doesn't listen to the small group, then a public announcement is to be made to the, to the church. Okay. Now, this is a... Would we all agree this is a drastic step? Would anybody even want to be part of this? I know I don't... I said last week... One of the things I said last week is, you, in your mind, you may be thinking, I wouldn't want to be a part of that. And can I tell you, that's a good thing. Because if you wanted to be a part of something like that, I'd wonder what's wrong with you. There'd be something wrong with you if you wanted to be part of that. Okay? But this is what Jesus tells us to do. Now, of course, this is a drastic step. Pastor Henry, see, it's so important here that we use our wisdom and discernment. Pastor Henry was telling me about a situation he was aware of that I thought just illustrated this beautifully. There was a church that had a certain situation, and there was a person in their church that was committing a sin, a fairly egregious sin, and someone had gone to them and talked to them and and talked to them multiple times, and they wouldn't change. They wouldn't repent. And so they took a small group to this person. Again, this person would not change, would not repent. So before they went to the third step, this is what they did. One Sunday morning, they got up, uh, stood up in the pulpit, one of the, one of the elders did, and said this. They made this announcement. Now watch this. They don't call any names. but This is what they said. They said, Your church board has recently been made aware that a member of this church is engaged in sin. We're going to pray on this matter for 30 days. And at the end of that time, if there's been no repentance on the part of the church member, we will pursue church discipline according to scriptural guidelines. However, it is our sincere hope that repentance will occur and no further action will be necessary. Now, there's a lot of wisdom in that, right? Because what you just did is you just gave that person, you got 30 days, right? But here's the other beauty. 25 people at the altar call ran down and got all the hidden sin out of their life. <laughs> right? Because they're all sitting there thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> this could be me. But I, I mean, I just thought that was really cool, right? It, it's, a, it's a really wise way to handle something, right? Because again, does anybody want to get to the point where a public announcement? No, nobody wants to get to that. We want to handle it in any way that we, we possibly can. Now, the, the question might be, what in the world is the point of this? What is the point that we get up in front of a church and make an announcement? By the way, let me say this. I also, I've researched this a lot. I've seen the way this is handled. I would, don't, keep in mind too, we use wisdom. We would never do something like this on a Sunday morning. You would never do something like this on a Sunday morning where we've got 450 people in this place and, and a lot of them are unbelievers. You would never do that on a Sunday morning. You would either do it on a Wednesday night, you may call a special meeting, but you get your core group. Everybody with me? You don't do this in front of the world, 
Okay, so don't even think, you know, we're not going there. But this is in front of your, your core church members. Now, you still may ask, what is the purpose of this? Well, the goal remains exactly the same as it was in steps one and two. It's to strengthen the reproof so that the offender realizes the seriousness of a sin. Can you imagine? Think about this. I, I, let's say I'm in sin and a friend of mine comes to me and they say, Derek, I, you know, I'm your friend. I love you. I've seen what you're doing. Man, you are going down the wrong road. You are in a real dangerous situation. You need to turn. Scripture says this. And I, I tell them, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Thank you for praying. You know, thank you. But then two weeks go by and he calls me again and says, hey, I've, I've watched you and I'm not seeing any change. Did you, have you thought about what we prayed about? Have you thought about what we talked about? Yeah, I thought about it and I'm, I'm trying to change. And maybe another week or two goes by and one day somebody knocks on my door and I open the door and it's this friend of mine with Pastor Henry and Pastor Chuck and I'm thinking, oh my, oh no, this ain't good. And they come in and they sit with me and they talk with me and I assure them I'm going to change and but I never do, and time goes by, and then finally, there's this announcement that's made to the church. Hey, we love Derek. He's our brother. He's been here a long time, but he's got this, this issue that he's dealing with. Now, can you imagine what happens now? I go to Walmart, right? And I'm, I think, well, at Walmart, I'm, nobody's going to mess with me, and I round the corner, and there's Bob, the Sunday school teacher. Derek, come here. I need to talk to you about this. And I go to Winn-Dixie, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm buying something in Winn-Dixie, and there's Sue, the nursery worker. Derek, come here. You see, the point is, now the admonishment is not just coming from a friend. The admonishment is not coming from a small group, but the admonishment is coming from the whole body. Everybody see that? That's the point here, is everybody is, is now involved, saying, man, we love you, we want you back. We, 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 everybody with me? I mean, we've raised this thing to a, a, a different level. Again, we all participate, and don't forget the goal. The goal is not judgment. The goal is not condemnation. The goal is repentance and reconciliation to bring this person back to the body. Now, again, how long does this go on? doesn't say. doesn't tell us how long this is to go on. That's up to us. We are to use discernment and wisdom. Remember 1 Thessalonians 5.14, be patient. Give them an opportunity, okay? Because trust me, we do not want to go to step four, never. If at all possible, you want to stay away from step four. So we do everything in our power to make sure this gets handled. Now, many of you at this point are probably thinking the same things that I think, okay? Because I think just like you, well, won't people just leave the church and just go to the church down the street, right? I mean, if people, if you say, if people understand these guidelines and you get to step one or two, and they realize what's coming, won't they just leave and go down the street? Well, let me, the answer to that is yes, they will. Absolutely. In this day and age, people will just up and take their sin with them and go to the church down the street. And, and, and to be quite honest with you, there's, there's really nothing we can do about that. That is completely out of our control. Okay, But that does not mean that we abrogate our responsibility to be obedient to Scripture. One day, each one of us will stand before God, and you will not answer for what he did. And you will not answer for what she did. You will answer for what you did. Did you obey my word? How many of y'all were here Wednesday night and, and read, preach? He said, he, at the end of that sermon, he said the, just one of the most wonderful things. At the end of the day, 
God asks one thing out of you, and that's to obey. That's it. Doesn't really care that you have great opinions. Don't really care that you have any... In fact, doesn't want your opinions, doesn't want your ideas, doesn't need your innovations. He asks for one thing, and that's obedience. And when you stand before him, that's what you'll account for. Did I obey your word? That's it. Was I obedient to your, to your word? You see, the fact is, I am called to be obedient. 1 Corinthians 5, 12, in New Living Translation, says it this way. Paul said, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Paul says, that's, you are called to do that. Keep yourself clean as a body. Keep yourself morally pure, doctrinally pure, as a body, that's your responsibility. That's, that's what I'm called to do. If that person ups and goes down the street, I, I hate that. I don't want that. But the point is, I'm accountable for what I am called to do. We relieve the results up to, up to God. Step four, what if we've gone to this person in step one? Step two, we've, we've taken a group to this person. Step three, we even made it, which nobody wanted to do. We made this announcement before the church. And this person has not changed. They just will not turn from this sin. Then what are we to do? Paul, uh, Jesus said this in Matthew 18, 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, this, of course, is the step of last resort. This is what nobody wants to do. But I want you to think about something here. By the time someone gets to this point, they have refused to listen to a friend. By the time someone gets to this point, they refuse to listen to a small group of people that's come to them. And they have refused to listen to the entire church. Everybody with me? They've had opportunity and after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. You see, if a person is so rebellious and so disobedient, and so hard-hearted that they refuse to listen to all, all those people. What, I, what you need to understand is inside of them, they've already cut themselves off from the body. Let me say that again. If they refuse to listen to a friend, refuse to listen to a group, refuse to listen to a church, then in reality, in their heart, they've already cut themselves off. They might be attending, they might be showing up, but inside, they're not a part of the body anymore because they won't listen to the body. They won't, they won't work with the body. They won't, they're not, they won't fellowship. Everybody with me? You see, what you're doing in this case, this, this final step basically just brings out in the open what's already come to pass inside of, that, um, inside of that person. Now, what does this last step entail? Well, it's not good, I can tell you that. I'll give you three things the Scripture tells us this last step entails. Number one, removal from the church. Okay, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Purge the evil person from among you. Okay? Um, what Paul is talking about here is excommunication. Okay? Not from, uh, you know, I know Catholics do excommunication from the Catholic, but they are excommunicated from this body, from this particular assembly. They are no longer welcome here. Okay, they are asked to. Uh, they are asked to leave. They're no no longer part of this covenant community. Now, again, pretty harsh, is it not? 
Absolutely. But understand, you never come to this. This isn't step one, right? This is the last resort. This is the intervention, so to speak, where we've tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to deal with someone, but they just will not turn from their sin. Number two, Jesus said it this way. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, keep in mind that when Jesus made that statement, he was talking to the Jews. And to the Jews, a Gentile and a tax collector were considered unclean and to be avoided. Okay? You didn't eat with them. You didn't deal with them. They were unclean. They were to be avoided. He said that's how your relationship is to be with this person. Paul gives us a few more specifics in 1 Corinthians 5.11. He said this, and let's read it again. But now I'm writing to you not to associate. Some of your translations may say not to keep company um, with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Keep in mind, folks, he's not talking about the guy you work with who's an atheist. He's not talking about him at all. Go to lunch with him. Minister to him. Go, go out to eat with him. That's fine. He's not talking about your neighbor who, who doesn't, is not a Christian and, or, or maybe they're a member of some other religion. Go, go eat with them. Have, you know, that, that's, not, that's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about someone in your body, someone in your church who says, I'm a Christian, but yet they continue to live just like the world lives. Paul said, when it's somebody like that, don't even eat with them. Don't associate with that, with that person. Now, you may ask the question, which I always ask, why? Why something so drastic? Okay? Well, Paul's already told us in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he said this, Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You remember last week, if you were here, in the New Testament, leaven always means sin. Leaven always refers to sin. What Paul is saying there is, don't you know that a little sin infects the whole body? In other words, what Paul is saying here is that what you've got, when you get somebody that is so... And it's, by the way, it's not just their sin that's the danger. It's the rebelliousness that's in them. It's the disobedience. It's the hard-heartedness. That's the real danger. And Paul said, when you get somebody like that, what you have to understand is that that person is a danger to the whole church. We, we, we used this last week, and I think this is great. Think of the church like a human body, which, by the way, is exactly what the Bible does. Some of, he says some of you are a finger, some of you are a toe, some of you are an ear. We all are the body where Jesus is the head. Isn't that what, isn't that what Paul tells us? Well, think about if you have a, a part of the body that's hurt, Let's say you have a cut finger, you have a broken arm. If you have a broken arm, you don't cut it off, do you? I hope not. What do you do? You, 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 you immobilize it, and then other part, they let, you let it rest and heal, and other parts of the body pitch in. You know, the, the, the other arm has to do more work. The brain has to think differently to make, you know, to make up for that while that thing heals. But let me tell you, folks, if you've got a cancer or you got gangrene, you treat that completely differently. You don't immobilize it, you cut it out. And what Paul is saying is when you got somebody in your church that's sinning, and it's not just the sin, they're so rebellious, they're so hard-hearted that they won't listen to the friends, 
They won't listen to their pastor. They won't listen to the church as a whole. What you've got is you've got an infection that if you don't cut it out, it will infect the entire body. That's why it's so drastic. Okay, it's, it's, it's so important. You see, one of the reasons, I, I, I was, when I was studying about this, I heard a guy ask this question. And he said, one of the reasons we think that church discipline is so drastic is because we don't think sin is that bad. But when you really see sin as an infection, as a cancer, as a gangrene in the body, you'll, you'll get rid of it. You'll, you'll understand that's got to go. And that's what Paul is, is talking to us about. Now, keep in mind, even when Jesus said that, Jesus reached out to tax collectors and sinners. Did he not? Of course he did. Okay? So what that tells us, this doesn't mean that we don't have any contact with them. This, we're not like Amish. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses who basically shun someone when, they've, when they, they'll shun somebody, which basically means treat them just like they're dead. Treat them just like they don't exist. That's not what we're talking about here. But we are talking about the fact our, the status of our fellowship has changed. We have to make some changes. If I used to go out to eat with that person, I can't do that anymore. In other words, I have to keep them at, a, at an arm's length, so to speak. My, the status of my fellowship has, has changed with them. Now, this is always the question everybody asks. Because <laughs> this is the hard... Listen, does anybody think this is easy? It's not easy. By the way, I don't think it was ever meant to be easy. I don't think... I, I think it's meant to be hard. Because it's something not only we should do very fearfully... Do you agree? I mean, you don't jump into this. You go into it. You tiptoe into it. I, I can tell you this week, I was down, chuckle tell you, I'm down Tuesday morning or Monday morning meeting with the pastor, going over all this, because I'm very fearful when I wade into a subject like this. I want to do it right. I've said this a million times. One day, I'll stand before God, and I'll answer for every lesson I've ever taught. Did you do it right? Did you do it to the best of your understanding and ability? So I came down and sat down with Pastor Chuck and Pastor Henry and talked about this, worked through all of it, okay? So it's not meant to be easy. It's, it's meant to it's almost, we've, we're to struggle with it, but yet it's still there in black and white, so to speak, that we don't just say, you know, it's hard, I'm not going to do it. That's not, we can't do that. But it's hard, it's meant you do it fearfully. You do it, you know, you, you do it with that make sure I'm doing this uh, correctly. What if they're family? Well, this is a tough one, okay? This is a tough one. What, because the fact is, in fact, when it comes to church discipline, I can tell you this, this is probably one of the most vexing questions you would ever have to answer with church discipline because pretty much anybody in a church that's got a... If there's a person there that needs to be dealt with, more than likely they've got a wife or a brother or an aunt or a sibling or a parent, somebody, and are we asking that person, would I ever ask a wife not to eat with the husband or a son not to eat with his mother or would I, would I, what's, what do we, what do we do here? By the way, I have heard of situations, and I'll tell you now, I don't agree with them, I've heard of situations where parents cut their children off because their children are in sin and they look at that scripture and say, well, I can't have nothing to do with you. So here's the best I can do. I do not believe that. I believe that biblical instructions on family faithfulness 
For example, husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Wives, submit to your husbands. All of those things, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I believe that those should take precedence over church discipline. Okay, I mean, you've got two things here. One says, you know, love them, nurture them, all that. The other one says don't eat with them. Listen, I think in a family that family relationships, family faithfulness should take precedence over that. Okay? If you've got any more questions, ask Pastor Henry because he'll be glad to... Uh... <laughs> I texted him I was going to tell you all that. So He said, I hope you preach a gra- uh, teach a great lesson so nobody asks me any questions. On Listen, there are, this is not easy, and I don't think it's meant to be easy. Right? Again, it's to be, it's to be approached with fear and trembling. Now... Third thing, real quickly, and i got to speed up. Paul says this. Now, this is another tough one. Read verses 4 through 5 with me. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What in the world does Paul mean by delivering someone over to Satan? Now, that's a tough one. Now, it could mean... It could mean that's the same as uh, removing them from the covenant community. It could mean the same as as excommunicating them from the church, but I don't think so. I I think it has to mean something different. Let me notice, I'm going to point three things out that Paul says. Number one, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says when you do this, you do it as a body. This isn't just, this isn't just um, some kind of procedural thing. You're, you're no longer a member. He says, when you come together in a body. Pastor Henry said this, and I kind of agree with him. It's almost as if, as long as you're in the body, you're kind of under this umbrella of protection. Okay? But, but somehow or another, it's almost like the church is removing their protection. And you're doing it as a body. This isn't something the pastor does. Everybody see that? When you are assembled, Paul. Do you understand Paul's writing from hundreds of miles away? Paul could have just said, as an apostle, removing. I'm telling you what to do. No, Paul says you do it. When you do it as an assembly, it's your responsibility. It's almost like as a church, you're removing your protection from that um, person. Then he says this, with the power of our Lord Jesus. You see, that's not just somebody losing their membership. That's something that takes the power of Jesus to perform. Are you with me? I mean, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now, again, do I know exactly what it means? I'm I'm not sure. But I think it's more than just removing them from the church. And then the third one, deliver this man to Satan. You only see this phrase used two other times in the Bible. One is in 1 Timothy 1.20 where Paul says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander... Who I, am, who I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's one other. The only other place that we see this in, in the Bible is in a very familiar story. Anybody know? It's in the book of Job. It's where Job, you remember the story, Satan comes to, to, to God and he says, look at your servant Job. No, actually God says to Satan, look at my servant Job. Ain't he the, man, he's the best. Right? Man, he's just so, he's a righteous man, he's a good man. And Satan says, man, take your hand off of him and he'll curse you to your face. I guarantee you. And so God says this, and the Lord said to the devil, behold, I hand him over to you, only spare his life. In other words, what he's saying is I hand his flesh 
his body, his life. I give it to you. You can do anything you want to him, only you have to spare his life. This is the only other place that we see this in the Bible. And if you read the next verse, it says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And if you go and you read that book and you'll find what was the final result of all that happened to Job, in Job 42, 5 through 6, Job said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And so what you see in this story is Satan became the means of a sovereign God bringing Job closer to him. When it was all said and done, Job was closer to God than he had ever been before. And that's exactly what I think is going on here. I think it is Paul's intention that God will use Satan to cause that man to repent and turn to Christ. In fact, he told us that in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, you may say, well, what's going to happen to him? I don't know, but I can tell you it ain't good. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen to him, but I can tell you, look at the term. I turn, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That means so that his body will be destroyed, so that his spirit might... In other words, he's going to take him through things, sicknesses, something, so that he'll cry out to God. You see, at the end of the day, it could be bulls, it could be sores, it could be blindness, it could be AIDS, it could be anything. But can I tell you, at the end of the day, it would be as nothing if it would save that person from, from hell. That's Paul's point. It, it's nothing if it'll save his spirit in the day of the Lord. All right, real quickly, i got about five minutes. That all sounds hard, it sounds embarrassing, it sounds awkward, it sounds risky, and it sounds painful. Why in the world should we ever practice church discipline? I'm going to give you six reasons real quickly. Two of them Paul gives to us. Number one, I've already said, because he asks us to. Obedience. Paul says, it is your responsibility to judge those inside the house of God. Number two, for the health of the church. We've already talked about that one. Uh, don't you know that a little sin infects the whole body? I want to give you four more, okay? Real quickly, church discipline glorifies God by vindicating His honor and His holiness, okay? If you go read Revelation and you read the messages where God writes the letter, He said, I got a letter to the church, right? You know what God says over and over again? You got sin in your midst, and if you don't get rid of it, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. In other words, you are no longer going to be a church. And if you think about that, it almost seems God would rather have no testimony in a city than have his name mingled with sin. God is a holy God, and he wants his church to be a holy church. And he said, if you don't, if you don't get rid of it, you won't be a church anymore. I, I won't have anything to do with that. I don't want my name mingled with, with sin. First Peter 1.16, he said this, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So church discipline affirms that the God we serve is holy. Therefore, we will be holy. We will not tolerate sin in our midst or in our house. Number uh, four, church discipline restores purity and deters others from sinning within the church itself. Paul has already told us that a little sin... By the way... Do you not understand? You see this same principle in life. Take a family with, with four or five children. If you let one of them get away with something, what happens to the others? Well, we can get away with that too, right? 
take a teacher in a classroom. You got 25 kids. You let two or three get away, what happens to the other? Well, we can get away with the same thing. You see it in government. If you take a government that doesn't enforce its laws, what's going to happen? Well, they're not doing it. I can get away. I don't have to do it either. You got chaos. Why would we think it's any different in the body? Why would we think it's any different in the body? If you get members in the body that just start disobeying the word and, and other people, well, you know, they're disobeying. Nothing's happening to them. It's, just, it's the same principle that goes on with us. In the local church, God has given authority to the pastors and elders to enforce discipline. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. One day, Pastor Henry and the elders of the church will have to give an account, not only for themselves, but they'll have to give an account for what, how they handled situations like this in the church. You know, I don't want to stand there and say, well, I just let it go. I didn't think it was a big deal, right? These things have to be um, dealt with. By the way, if we don't deal with these situations, it won't take long till the church looks exactly like the world, which, by the way, it, it pretty much does. Why do you think it does? Because most churches aren't enforcing church discipline. That's why most churches across this country, they look just like the world. Number five, church discipline draws a line between the church and the world. This is really interesting. Did you know, up until the mid-1800s, that church discipline was as common in a church as communion? If you go back and look at the churches, uh, basically all the way up to the mid-1800s, church discipline was just as common as communion. In fact, I did some research on the Southern Baptists. Up to the mid-1800s, Southern Baptist churches would excommunicate, on an average, 2% of their members every year. Okay? When you came and you joined a church and you became a member, they took that seriously. You said, as a member, I will try to live a holy life. As a member, I will do certain things. And, and you, were, you were held to that. And if you didn't do those things, then you were, you were, you were gone. Um, they, were, they were pretty serious about, about sin. Now, you might say, what changed? Um, well, what happens around the mid-1800s is you, is you see what happens is the church starts going outside their walls, not just to try to win people to Christ, but to try to change people's behavior. Okay, there was a, a nice little study. Let me read this to you real quickly. The more churches concerned themselves with social order, the less they exerted church discipline. From about 1850 to 1920, church discipline declined steadily as evangelicals persuaded their communities to adopt the moral norms of the church for society at large. As Baptists learned to reform the larger society, they forgot how they had once reformed themselves. Church discipline always presupposed a stark difference between the norms of society and the kingdom of God, but the more evangelicals focused on purifying society, the less they felt the urgency of a discipline that separated the church from the world. In a nutshell, what he's saying, the world used to be up here as far as, or let's say the church was up here and the world was down here, and then what happened is the church started trying to reform the world and we had prohibition and things like that, but when they did all that, they brought the world kind of up, but the church kind of came to here and now we're just kind of all... <laughs> That's kind of what he's, what he's saying. Scripture is clear, folks, that we are to be distinct from the world. We are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Um, we are to be different. 
And can, you, can I please understand this? I'm not at all talking about adding legalistic rules. I'm talking about doing one simple thing. That's just obeying his, his word. Just obeying what's clearly stated in the Bible. That's all he's ever asked us to do. He doesn't make, he doesn't make he doesn't go make up your own rules. Just obey what, I, what I've given you here. Uh, last one real quickly. Church discipline conveys biblical love. Some people wrongly think that love is opposed to discipline, but every one of us here know deep down the exact opposite that is true. If you love your children, you will discipline them. Don't tell me you love your children and you just let them run wild and do whatever they do. You don't love them. Now, I don't know what you feel about them, but you don't love them. Love disciplines. In fact, we see that with God, do we not? Look at uh, Hebrews twelve six. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. We discipline our children because we love them. God disciplines his children. Why do we do church discipline? Because we love. Because we don't want that person to go down that road where there's no coming back from. We don't want that person to go down a road where they're going to ruin their family and ruin their children and ruin their relationships. We want to pull them back because we love them. That's why we do all that. Augustine said this, and we'll stop here. If you see your brother sin and you fail to go to him, you are worse than he is. He has stricken himself with a grievous wound. Will you completely disregard your brother's wound? Will you simply watch him stumble and fall down? Will you disregard his predicament? If you do so, you are worse in your silence than he is in his sin. That's a pretty strong statement. And I, and I actually agree with that because the fact is when you see that when you first see a brother or a sister sin and you've got an opportunity, do you understand the farther it goes, the worse it gets? Down the line, they could ruin their family. They could ruin their relationships. They could Think about all the things that could happen and you had an opportunity to go to them privately and bring them back. And you didn't do it. And he said, if you don't do that, if you don't help them, in the end, you're worse than, um, you're worse than he is. Listen, difficult subject. I appreciate you guys being so attentive here today. If you got any questions, ask Pastor Henry. That's all I can tell you uh, from this point on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, 1 Corinthians 5. We understand, Lord, it's a difficult passage, but it is something that you laid out, that Paul laid out there, that you laid out in in Matthew 18. Uh, God, it's not supposed to be easy, and I'm thankful for that. I don't want it to be easy. I want to, if we have to do this, we want to go into it with fear and trembling. But we also want to be obedient to your word. So, Father, I ask today, help us as friends. If we have people in our lives that we know are, are, are moving away from the word, that are going the wrong way, give us the strength and the boldness to go to them privately, to pull them back, as it were, to not ignore them, not just to think that it's going to get better all on its own. But God, help us through prayer and through the Holy Spirit and through the power of your word to obey your word and do what your word calls us to do. Because, Lord, if they, do, if they repent, it ends there. And, God, that's exactly what you want to happen. We pray for our service today, Lord, that your, uh, that your name will be lifted up and glorified in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.